Welcome to Season 8 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name is Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording, and I'd like to pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Elders past, present and future, and I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on this land. Today I have the great privilege of sharing a conversation that I had with the incredible Professor Ravulo. Professor Ravulo is the Professor and Chair of Social Work and Policy Studies in the School of Education Social Work at the University of Sydney. His research, writing and areas of interest include mental health and well-being, alcohol and other drugs, youth development, marginality and decoloniality. He has been involved and invited to author over 60 publications, including peer-reviewed journal articles, scholarly book chapters, research projects and opinion pieces. He is involved in various community-based research and co-design initiatives, including projects that support health literacies across equity groups, enhancing service delivery models for young people and their families, and a variety of other fascinating projects. Professor Georgi Rivolo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much, Matthew, and I'm delighted to be here on the podcast. And whereabouts are you phoning in from? I'm currently on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation here on campus at the University of Sydney. Fantastic, fantastic. I uh, Before we hit record, uh, you showed me a view of Manning Bar, which is a, has a very... Uh, special place uh in my heart are you a frequenter at uh, uh manning bar yeah they've got great food they do. <laughs> they do. i remember um my wife and i actually started dating at uh sydney uni um uh we actually it was sort of official and it was just outside manning bar and i remember um being a poor uni student and so many times going to the atm there and only having $19 in my bank account and not being able to buy lunch. Uh, so uh, it's great, cheap food. Hopefully that still continues. Yeah, that's it. That's it. The joys of being a poor university student. So I know. I was, so, I was so skinny back then as well. So yeah. I, yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, quite possibly uh, the most important question for our conversation. What's your coffee order for when I can finally swing by and buy a coffee? Oh, thank you. It's a soy flat white. Fantastic. Have you always... Uh, drank soy i'm considering uh changing to a soy order as well no um i have I've, i'm relatively new to drinking soy probably in the last two or three years before that i was just in denial about possibly having some form of issue with lactose yes. and i just would just ride pain as opposed to actually <laughs> deal with it but then i was like oh someone put me on to soy and it was i'm all the better for it Fantastic. And uh, is there a book that you have read recently? It could be uh, in regards to your own study or, or more personally that has caused you to stop and reconsider a few things in your life. That's a great question. Um, as you can see, I'm in my office uh, on campus and I've got a collection of different books behind me here in my, in my office. And I'm always fascinated by 
literature and books that talk about this notion of the lived experience or trying to understand the reality of, of people from diverse backgrounds. And when we talk about diversity, I'm really talking about anything to do with, you know, areas, lots of areas of diversity, you know, ethnicity, class, gender, sexuality, language, religion. Like diversity for me fascinates um, me and is a really big part of what I do in my work and really is a big part of the collection of, of books that I have behind me. Fantastic. And we'll uh, get into your uh, fascinating work um, in a little bit. But I, I quite, um, before we get into it, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, uh, who yeah. would be there? I mean, your family and friends uh, don't count in the headcount, uh, but who would you like to sit down with and share a meal with? Ah. Oh, I love that question, Matthew. So I would definitely have someone like Lauren Hill. So a massive oh, nice. Hill fan. I've yet That's to it. see them perform live. But, um, I'd, you know, people like Lauren Hill. I would invite people like Paulo Freire, uh, the philosopher, Brazilian philosopher. He's now passed. But um, he would be fascinating to have a conversation with. Um, then there'll be people like Pele Hoofa, who is a Tongan uh, cultural, Pacific cultural uh, studies scholar, but has done a lot of creative art. So he set up the uh, Pacific Cultural Arts Centre at the University of the South Pacific. And then uh, I would also have Belle Hooks there, who is a, a famed um, a black academic. She recently passed, but she has been very influential in the way in which I viewed the world. So there's some of the people on my on my dinner list. Wow, that sounds like a uh, fascinating uh, dinner party. I'd, I'd love a uh, if you had an extra seat, I'd love to uh, love to come along. So invited, so invited. You'd be you. there. The only person I know from that list, or I've heard of, is Lauren Hill. Yes. But, um, I would love to broaden my uh, uh, broaden, broaden my friendship circles. Um, just wondering, uh, what was your um, upbringing like, and what were you like? Uh, what were you like at school? So my upbringing was formative, like I think most upbringings are. Yeah. I was one of those kids, though, from a very young age, where I was aware of my own sense of self and others around me. So I was one of those children young people that would make friends with anyone and everyone and i had a fair understanding of of people's need even as a young kid i think i was quite empathetic like i i i, I knew the notion of empathy quite earlier on i remember in kindergarten year one year two I, I'd, I'd go around and, and i would make friends with the kids the smelly kids the smelly <laughs> kids inverted commas the kids that weren't necessarily you know seen as the desirable kids to hang around with mm -hmm. and to be honest with you I probably was one of those but <laughs> I, I, I definitely was I, yeah. <laughs> and I just wanted to just extend my network of of the undesirables but no I really was aware of of that growing up and I think that then formed obviously my desire and passion to go into social work but through my my engagement with community that I also then went on and did my master's in education because I was generally passionate about this idea of how education is a power uh, for transformation, for transformation yeah. in a way that provides scope for people to be men yeah. included in their societies. Yeah, I, I think that's so important. And, and where do you think this... Um, I, my understanding is that you grew up in southwestern Sydney, a, a wonderfully uh, culturally diverse uh, part of Sydney. I've had the privilege of working there for many years. But where do you think this um, uh, this sort of notion of empathy came from? And the, uh, quote unquote, the notion of the undesirables. Why do you think you were drawn to them? Was it something 
I don't know, I don't mean to be rude, but maybe in your experience, did you feel like you were uh, uh, yes. one of the outsiders or, or where do you think that came from? Yeah, totally, Matthew. Look, I grew up in public housing in, in southwest Sydney and I realise uh, actually quite, again, as a young person that I was seen as different. Um, it's interesting, I was saying to some colleagues earlier today that when I was doing um, my doctorate, I know I'm going to move up and around all my yeah, different journeys, please do. but please do. I remember after doing 110,000 words of this doctorate, I had to come up with a summary statement of literally yeah. a few words to summarise 110,000 words. Yeah. And the summary statement was, you're not different until someone treats you that way. Wow. And for me, I think I have embodied that in my journey, um, both socially uh, and educationally. Um, and so I think that has been a, a, a big thing for me that um, you don't realise that you're different until, you know, other people treat you. And, and, and that's the thing. I've been treated differently in different ways because of the way I look or the way I speak or the way I hold myself or different areas associated with how I interact with the world. And it's through that experience that I've come to realise that diversity in and of itself is something that should be celebrated rather mm. than seen as a deficit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in what ways at school were you treated differently? I know that's a, a huge question for uh, quarter past seven in the evening. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, did you, going back to your uh, notion of you don't didn't know you were different until you were treated differently, did you feel different at school or was there a moment where you started to see people uh, uh, interact with you differently or what was that experience like for you? When did you, uh, when were you sort of consciously aware that there were people that were not like you yeah it was it was as I was getting older I had a very supportive primary school it was a relatively small primary school that I attended growing up and that was a great experience and they definitely enhanced my leadership skills I was school captain because I was very keen in areas of leadership right. even as a young kid and then when I went to my high schools I went to three different high schools um, as you get older, you start to realise again, when people start to treat you differently, that you then mm -hmm. start to realise that you are different. And I remember in year nine, I was um, new to that school at the time. And I remember getting out of the car with my Anglo-Australian mother. So I'm biracial. My father's in Indigenous uh, Fijian, told K Fijian, Indigenous Fijian, mother's Anglo-Australian. I remember getting out of the car in year nine and one of my relatively new friends was like, where's your mother? And I pointed to my white mother and th I said, that's my mother. And they said, no, that's not your mother. She's white. Um, and then I realised that my father was a person of colour, that my mother was white. And, and it's that idea of you then come to realise that you mm. are seen by other people in different ways. Wow. And that then that really then started a whole series of other areas where I was made to feel different because I, I'm from a Pacific background. I had a lot of teachers expect that I was just going to go into um, rugby league or rugby union. So I'd actually be asked to try it. And I was hopeless, but it was by virtue of that I was an Islander that I would actually fit into all that sort of wow. stuff. I was not like that at all. So, you know, again, people will have perceptions about what you are and what you should be. And I think it was through those experiences in my, in my childhood and adolescence that I came to realise that, yeah, again, that I'm different from what was expected. Wow. Did you have any role models at school and uh, were there any people that you that you really kind of felt drawn to, uh, for examples? So I remember having an amazing uh, primary school teacher. Her name's uh, 
Sue Rindflesh, and she was she was great in being able to support um, my interests and my talents uh, and my differences as well. So I think that was really helpful. And then I went to three different high schools. So Year Seven and Eight was one high school, Nine and Ten was another high school, and then I ended up my last two years of high schooling was at Newtown High School, the Performing Arts, where I was a drama student. And even there, I was still trying to figure out how I fitted in. Um, and I think one of the things that I did learn is that I did have some key teachers that would champion, you know, me and my perspectives on things. But a lot of the time, you're right, it was about me just sort of being comfortable and sort of moving ahead in ways that I thought was going to be helpful. And what I'm basically saying is that there were times where I felt like I was not necessarily understood, but by the time I got to the later years of high school, yeah. I, I realised that I just needed to keep going irrespective of, of my areas of diversity. And there were there were still supportive teachers and other people around me, but it was one where I, I had to really think more independently um, about yeah. who I was and where I was going. Yeah, I think that's so important. And this is a conversation that that um, I've been really made aware of with my wife, who is um, Indian South African. Uh, we were both, uh, sorry, our children are the, are the first generation in our family to be born in Australia, and they are half South African, half English, fully Australian, however that works. And so uh, these sort of, I, I remember the first time uh, going to a place called Peter Marisburg in South Africa and feeling like I didn't belong. Mm. Um, and it was a really strange experience. I'm a, a white, middle-class, heterosexual male, and I've just never, and for a split second, I remember turning to my wife walking through Peter Marisburg, which is quite a rural um, uh, a rural, rural town, but we were walking through and looking at the, the images uh, in, the, um, uh, in the shop fronts, and I said to her, I said, I feel a bit out of place here. Um, and she turned around and whispered to me and said, that's how I felt every single day. Um, yes. it was a, and I it can no means begin to empathize with with people that have gone through that but it was a moment for me where I stopped and thought oh my goodness um representation matters and that seems like such an obvious thing to say but I had never experienced that in my life and so um I had never thought about that and I know when we're getting um I don't know dolls for our for, for our two daughters we've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old like my wife cared so deeply that she would see dolls that looked like them. And it seems like such a little thing, but representation is so important and it matters. Yeah, I completely agree. So I didn't have any people that looked like me as teachers no. growing up. I still had, as I mentioned, key champions. Like I had a music teacher before I went to the, the performing arts high school at a Catholic high school. Uh, her name's uh, Miss Ratton, Miss Elizabeth Ratton. She was instrumental in also supporting me. I think one of the things I did learn when it comes to my interactions with teachers or the ones that I had rapport with was the teachers or educators that genuinely wanted to know me and my areas of diversity as yeah. opposed to I'm just there because I'm just one of the other students. And that's fine. I am one of the other yeah. students. But educators that create scope for their students to feel valued for their diversity, I think that's what matters. And that's what I saw from so, those teachers yeah. that I had a good rapport with growing up. Yeah. And um, respectfully, you don't seem like a sort of a typical academic. Um, I wish you were, and I think that's probably a good thing. Um, I think about my wonderful, excuse me, my uh, wonderful lecturers at Sydney University that were so formative in me, in my life. Um, they all looked and dressed a certain way. Um, mm. Did you have 
Um, I mean, you're a professor at Sydney Uni. That is a phenomenal achievement. Um, what was that like having people that like, what was it like sort of carving that new path? And 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 you are now that example to so many people. But is that a is that a strange feeling? Do you feel like you've made it? Is there more work to do? Or yeah, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a mixed bag for me, Matthew, and thank you for that. I, I um, have my various moments of time where you're right, there's no other person that, um, like, uh, you know, noting that when I became a professor here at, uh, uh, at the University of Sydney in March last year, in 2021, um, I was the first person of the Pacific Heritage to become a professor in Australia. And for me, yes, that's a celebration and one that we celebrate across the, the, the broader Pacific diaspora here in Australia and beyond. But my question that still remains is why? Why did it take until 2021 to have um, someone from a Pacific heritage uh, to become a professor in an Australian university? So for me, that's a challenge. It's also something that, so both a celebration and a challenge. Mm. And so I am mindful at times that, you know, me being um, me is something that I need to continue to uh, be mindful of. I am conscious that, you know, it's very easy for me to fall into this idea that I need to be like what other professors look like and or sound like and or do. But after the first six months of being here, I remember having some conversations with some colleagues, including my head of school, and I was reminded that, you know, I'm here because of my ability to be me. And so that's something that I, I continue to uh, remind myself. It's not easy, it's not easy, but it's something that I think is helping me in my journey, my authentic journey as an academic. Yeah, I, I think that's so important. I mean, there's, there's it, it, it's both inspiring, um, but also really it raises that question of why are there not more um, people of your heritage in positions like this? It's both a wonderful achievement, but also... I would imagine slightly frustrating that there's not greater representation, um, and it's um, it, it's it's really wonderful. Do you ever feel? Um, do you still struggle with that? Um, do you ever feel a little bit out of place? Do you ever feel like you need to, I don't know, wear a suit or, or <laughs> wear dad shoes? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I've come I've come to terms with that, Matthew, and I think part of it is because I realise that it's through my ability just to be, you know, my authentic self that I can actually engage in these particular conversations in different spaces and places. And someone reminded me, actually, it's quite funny that you should ask this question. Someone reminded me last week that, yes, it can be hard to be different in these spaces, but it's a, it's a learning journey for everyone, not just um, uh, me, but for other people. So, for example, on four separate occasions last week, as I was sharing at different locations, my role just by virtue of saying, you know, I'd start a conversation with some people and then, you know, it was it, it, it was quite interesting on four separate occasions, people's response when I said, oh, you know, hi, I'm Chorcha, sorry, I should have told you, I'm Professor and Chair of Social Work and Policy Studies in the Sydney School of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. The response I got from four different people in four different conversations in four different locations was, oh, congratulations. And to be honest with you, that... Wow. Is, that annoyed me somewhat because yeah. I was like, why are you congratulating me for just telling you who and what my title is? Wow. But I was talking to some some friends on reflection of that, that experience across the week and they said, well, people are not used to someone that looks like you 
being in a role like that. So they're challenged, but they're also, um, I think, somewhat uh, learning that people that look like you can be in these particular roles and have such responsibility. So see, again, that's both a celebration, but also a challenge at the same time. Yeah. Do do you think there is a, um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to word this, it's just a thought at the moment, so please bear with me. Do you That's think okay. There, this is a safe space. Safe space. Yeah. Just ask as is. Yeah, do, do you think there is, and, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's sort of overt racism, but do you think there is a, there is an underhanded, there is an underhanded current and a, a lack of understanding or, a, a, like, how would you sort of begin to have those conversations? Because I think yeah. it's well-meaning, but that's also not an excuse, not even... I don't know. How would you even begin to have those conversations and begin to sort of change that dialogue? So there's definitely notions of unconscious bias that comes through in the context of these particular comments. And I think it's not intended to be negative, but there are areas of what we call microaggressions that can also occur off the back of those particular comments without people realising. So those comments, like, for example, what I had shared, they, they remind me constantly that I'm different. Like I'll be in conversations where I'll just have you know, general everyday conversations and then I'll say something and then people will say something back in response and I go, well, you've just reminded me that I'm different by virtue of just turning up into these spaces and that can be quite offsetting, right? Yeah. Just in your everyday normal context of just trying to be normal, you know, in inverted commas. Yeah, wow. People just constantly then remind you that you are different by virtue of just being there. So, yeah, there are levels of, of racism, and I think it is, again, one that needs to be called out whilst also being um, part of that shared conversation around how we can try and shake up these particular views and, and perspectives. Yeah, I think that's that I think that's so important and such an important conversation to have. And as you know, I'm um, uh, directly involved in schools and, and I think I, I want to try and have these discussions so we can make schools more inclusive spaces, not just just culturally. Like I think, I think these important that these conversations are so important to create these safe spaces for our young people. Um, and um, tell me about take me back a little bit to when you were. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about role models and 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 what it meant to you. Um, did, sorry, did you ever feel like you were, um, people were mo- pushing you in a certain direction? So did people just assume you were, like you're saying, great at sport or great at footy or great at rugby league? or And what did that do to you to actually have to begin to forge your own path? And I'd imagine it would be, it would take an incredible amount of bravery to say, do you know what? Like, no, I'm going to be the one that is pioneering for, uh, for this. Like, what was that like not to have that, mm. yeah, that kind of representation? It's interesting, Matthew, part of or a lot of my journey has been around being a reluctant leader. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So let me um, unpack that, what I mean by that. So I've just learned that I'm motivated by different things, um, especially people. So people generally are my inspiration, especially those that are seen not to fit in. And I think that connects back to growing up and having that level of empathy and and seeing the perceived undesirable. and, 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 And I would see what can I do to help, you know, change the way in which we interact and create spaces. So I'm inspired when I look at 
people that are considered to be in the margins, um, I'm inspired by the need to then go, well, what are we doing as a society to be better? Like, what are we Mm. doing to ensure that we don't have these margins and centres, that, you know, we're not creating scope for people to be outside of that? And so with that in mind, a lot of my work has been to then look at models of service delivery and provision within a social work context and the community or educational programs in the community for young offenders with low levels of numerous illiteracy or widening participation programs in universities to encourage uh, equity groups that traditionally don't go into further education and training. So a lot of my desire has been just focused on that. And as a result of then being perceived as being innovative, because I've been trying to create scope for such communities to be included, people see that as, oh, my gosh, you're a leader. And I'm like, no, I'm just doing what I'm passionate about. Does that make sense, Matthew? So that's where absolutely comes in. Absolutely. And so... That raised an interesting, um, uh, interesting concept. Like, what do you think then leadership is? I mean, because we have this sort of notion, and I'm so glad this has changed. There's this sort of man sitting up in the boardroom making all these decisions, and it's very sort of top down, bottom up. Sorry, top down. That's right, top down. Um, so, how do you define le- uh, leadership, and what does it mean to you? And how can we begin to reframe reframe that narrative of what a leader is? Leadership, I believe, is all about serving others and understanding where others are at and how you as a leader can champion others. And that's something that I've realised more and more, especially um, climbing the various academic ranks to become a professor, that now that I'm at this level, I realise that my role as an educational leader, as as a senior academic, is to champion others. And so that really comes through this idea of serving others and getting to know how you can then support others to excel. And so for me, that's what I think an educational leader is about. They're about being able to lead teams and educational environments and other areas to a success where others are brought alongside that success. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. Do Do you still not view yourself as a leader, or do you think you're you're, you're no? Because that seems like that's what you're <laughs> Yes. Wow. Actually, I just realised that you just what you just did there. Hmm. That's interesting. Yes. Well, then, yes, then I would be by that definition a, a leader, but still reluctant, still <laughs> reluctant to call myself a leader because for me. Again, my idea of 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 going into these particular roles mm. for others that might be seen as ambitious, you know, being where I am, uh, where where I've been able to achieve at this at this level, but at the same time, for me, it's just staying true with that that vision of being able to serve others mm. and bring others alongside that journey. That's so important. And would you mind maybe unpacking some of the amazing work that you've been doing? at the community level like how do we begin to and i'm thinking especially around working with young people how do we begin to bring in community voice in a way that is uh, authentic and also meaningful because i work in an organization where it's very easy to roll out a program without um, but i i wonder how we can do that better to, to to really get that community engagement and yeah how do we do a better job of it yeah there's a couple of key things here one of the 
One of the key sort of on-trend things that are now being discussed more and more, especially in the social sciences, including education, is this notion of, of lived experience. Yeah. So it's this idea of how do we genuinely engage people and their lived experiences as part of our educational environments, as part of our models of service delivery and provision? How do we ensure that when we are creating um, you know, educational environments that we're not just doing it for the sake of getting a particular learning outcome, but we're also utilising uh, young learners and their lived experiences and whether that be, again, from multiple diverse backgrounds as part of that journey. So it really is, again, that understanding and privileging those lived experiences as part of that shared conversation. And so that's the first thing. The second thing I want to note is this notion of cultural humility. And so this is another key term that is coming up more and more in the wow. literature. And cultural humility, by definition, is this idea of being able to uh, learn about others in a way that is inclusive. And it's where you work together to actually create, again, a common outcome. And a lot of the time it's about genuinely getting over yourself and sitting and providing scope for you to learn, 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 learn constantly about the other in a way that actually brings together that shared journey. Mm. I think that's so important. And and one of the things that I'm trying to do a better job as an educator and as a husband and a dad is just to keep my mouth shut and listen and actually just, you know, and, and I, I think we all we all come to to situations with prejudices and, and, and worldviews. And I think I love the concept of seeking to understand first because I could be, and quite often am, completely wrong or haven't even begun to understand the perspectives mm -hmm. of other people. And I think how important do you think it is to actually actively listen and mm -hmm. to engage in this kind of dialogue? So important. It's one of the key underpinnings of practicing cultural humility. So it is about being able to genuinely listen in a way that provides scope for other people to be heard and understood, where you as the listener can also transform your own perspectives as part of that shared approach. There's lots of different First Nations concepts that actually support this notion of deep listening so in a lot of the First Nations Australians' uh, perspectives, there's this concept uh, called didiri, which is, is this notion of deep listening and being able to hold space. In Pacific communities, we've got a term called talanoa, which is about being able to create and hold space and to nurture the sacred space, the va or the verakovi that exists between us or the tumble that exists between us. So... A lot of that deep listening needs to occur if we are going to genuinely create culturally safe and sustainable spaces. Wow. Um, we had a conversation a little while ago at the AECL, so the Australian College of Educational Leadership, and you were so present in that conversation. And I wanted to thank you for that publicly. I, I, I was a little nervous to go up and say hi to you, and you were wonderfully warm and, and so kind. And the first thing I did when I went back to my wife and and sort of said, oh, my gosh, I, I talked to him. Um, As <laughs> I said, like, he was so present and he was so kind. And, and I wonder, is is that something which which comes naturally to you or is that something which you've had to work on? Or um, 
uh, yeah, you you were just so engaged, and I could imagine that you have a million other things going on in your life. So how do, how do you usually practice that? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Abes, Matthew. I should talk to you more often to get all these compliments. I, I, was, genuinely, <laughs> I, I was genuinely um Oh no, I appreciate that. Like I like I think it was it was such a wonderful thing and and and, and genuinely like um it's something that as a result of our conversation, we would have talked probably 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, and you were so interested in what I was talking about, and you were so present. And it's something that even after that short interaction that I had with you, that I thought I need to be more like that, whether it's with my kids or my colleagues or my relationships. And and firstly, thank you for that. And also, have you always been good at that? Um, or is it something, yeah, you, that you worked on? Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Again, I, it's, to be honest with you, I, I when I hear people give feedback on how I interact, it does genuinely surprise me. So that's why you hear me giggling at times with those compliments. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because I think what I've done in my life is just to do, you know, or practice particular approaches that hopefully is inclusive and engaging. Yeah. I think a lot of it has come from my social work training and my many years of working in the community. Um, and a lot of the time for me, I realise that it's not just about creating a space for people to come into it. it's about being able to ensure that that space um, does create scope for people to bring their authentic selves into those conversations so you know it's as simple as being able to engage people in a conversation in the here and now as opposed to thinking about other things that might be happening outside of the here and now but to be honest, it does go back to a lot of those Pacific Indigenous concepts that I've been brought up in and learning from those perspectives. And that's why I genuinely believe that it is possible to learn from Indigenous peoples globally and locally around what they've been practising for many, many years before colonisation. And I think it's through those particular shared practice approaches that we can create environments, communities that generally are inclusive so how does um and you may have already answered this but how does somebody like me um who um doesn't have your experience who doesn't have an indigenous experience who doesn't have mm -hmm. an understanding of uh, of the some of the incredible cultures and how do we be, how do i begin to have those conversations with people about about doing that well and engaging and yeah, how, how do I begin to do that? Because I think sometimes, to be perfectly honest, it's hard to have these conversations because, and I'm only speaking from my experience, it's mm. you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to mm. insult people. You don't want to come across ignorance. Um, but that's also not an excuse. We have to be having these conversations. So how do we how do we do a better job of it? Yeah, I, I agree. And this is something that I'm always mindful of as well. One of the other key concepts in cultural humility is the notion of being curious. So I'm also talking at times about this idea of being culturally curious. And so this is where instead of going into conversations, feeling like you need to know something, which is more from a cultural competence point of view, right? And that's why cultural humility is trying to really disrupt the notion of cultural competence, Traditionally, cultural competence is all about learning about the other in a static and fixed way. You, know, you learn about how this particular behaviour may occur and then you go to that 
that you know that group of diversity or that area of diversity and you go haha i've done a two-hour course and now i'm an expert <laughs> in you peoples you've all done those courses and that's right are. we've all done those that's courses. Right. that's right yeah. and that's where we do stuff up because we go in feeling like we are an expert of the other Whereas with cultural humility and the practice of cultural curiosity, it's all about going in with a level of, again, learning. So if you're unsure about why someone might be saying something in particular that might be quite diverse to what you believe, ask them. Ask the question why. So it might be as simple as saying, oh, I noticed that this is what you had said before. You you do this particular thing. Uh, tell me what's, why, why do you do that? Like, I'm, I, I want to know more about um, your area of diversity or your area that, you know, exists. Or yeah. I want to get to know about you really. You don't have to talk about diversity. You can just, you just, again, just being able to create a Love space that. where you just ask questions. And, and that's where you really do create scope for others to be heard and listened to and feel included. Gosh, I love that. I'm getting goosebumps. I think that's so important. And um, I love these kind of conversations because I know that there will be teachers all over the world listening to this today and will be interacting with students and with adults and people of all different um, backgrounds. Um, and, and my hope is that they would do that, that they would create these spaces to actively listen and, and ask questions and seek to understand. I think it's, it, it's so incredibly important. And, and also I feel like it, 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 it's so needed now. I think the world seems so divided and it's, uh, there's so much divisive rhetoric. I think sometimes we just mm. need to sit down at the dinner table, have a conversation with people and then um, just remind them, that um we're all human we all want the same things we are also so much more similar than we are different and um i just wanted to touch on a a, a quote that you said from the um AECL the 2020 a closing address that you made which was amazing like i i yeah i recorded it and on the recording of that you can just hear me like sniffling um and i didn't have a cold i was genuinely genuinely moved by what you said and um i just wanted to to read one of your quotes and i'd love you to unpack it you said i had to discover what it meant to be me and i just wondered what this means and how can we encourage other people to be truly themselves because you had me at that point and i was just like well <laughs> being like and, but it, it's so important and so why did you say that um and also how can we encourage people to do the same one of the things that I think we do so well in in our society, especially in Western societies, is put on a facade. We learn how to do certain things that are acceptable, and I get it. There's social norms and values, and that's something that we all strive to achieve through being part of the collective. But after working many years in Western Sydney, especially with young offenders, so young people involved in the youth justice space, this idea of being normal was, was quite a challenging one where young people who weren't traditionally seen as normal, that's all they wanted to do is to be normal, to be included. And from that experience, I learned that to be normal is to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves whilst also creating opportunities for ourselves to be genuinely included. So it's not about creating a society that is homogenous, where everyone has to act or be the same. Rather, it's about creating more of a pluralistic 
and more of a broader scope in the way in which society actually exists. Let me unpack that quickly a bit further. So traditionally, we'd always see areas of diversity as being a challenge and something that we would have to sort of counteract by creating social norms and values where everyone just learned to fit in. But that doesn't actually work with humans. Uh, human behaviour is one that if you're told to actually comply, you generally will do the opposite. Mm. But when you create scope, including educational environments and other areas of the community, to be inclusive where people are able to bring their various areas of diversity based on their age, gender, class, religion, sexuality, colour, ability, all of those particular things, if you're encouraging people to bring those areas of diversity to the conversation, that then can be meaningfully included in those spaces in a way where you create the norm where diversity is genuinely included. And so my point is that that's where I'm still learning to be me, is about being, if I'm able to be me and bring my various areas of diversity based, again, on my age and my class and my colour and my sexuality to those conversations, then I'm creating scope for those that may be similar or those that are not similar to also be part of that same space and conversation. That's so important. And what sort of implications do you think that has Um for how and for what we teach our children uh because um i remember i was born in the uk and the only understanding i have had that i had of australia was captain cook Mm. and that is embarrassing to admit that but i had there was no teaching it was very eurocentric it was the british empire it was Mm. the egyptians all of this kind of stuff and 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 i wasn't taught any of the ways that Indigenous populations were treated in Australia. I had no idea about um, that aspect of history. And and it really made me think about um, what should we be teaching our kids and how do we begin to, what sort of implications does what you just say said have for our schools and our school systems? Because we need to do a better job. Totally. And with what I just said and what you've just picked up on, that, that's why notions of the lived experience and cultural humility is, is, is vital to creating scope for educational spaces to be genuinely and generally inclusive. For example, I was involved in providing some critical feedback on the um, controversy around the Manly Pride jersey that happened a, a couple of months ago yes. with the Seagulls in the National Rugby League. So those that are from overseas, the National Rugby League is the peak body that oversees the code of rugby league here in Australia, which is quite a big code here. And there was a controversy uh, with one of the um, clubs around their players wearing a pride jersey. Do you like how I'm providing context for the global audience? I, I really appreciate <laughs> it. I'm not a huge rugby league fan, so I'm learning selling as well. So I really <laughs> So, yeah. And then what happened is that a uh, majority of those people that were refusing to wear this particular jersey were, were from a Pacific Island background. Uh, and one of the reasons why they were saying they want to wear the jersey was because of cultural and religious beliefs. And one of the key things that I I did as part of this critical conversation was I wrote an opinion piece that was published by the Sydney Morning Herald and and it was titled Don't Blame Pacific Island Culture for Queer Fear, uh, Blame Colonisation. 
And it was through that particular piece that I wanted to nuance the conversation around diversity and how important it is that everyone, irrespective of whether they are from a particular religious view or not, realize that it's part of a broader shared conversation. And one of the one of the ways that you create that shared conversation is education. And the way in which you create the understanding of others is by creating scope for people to hear about the lived experience of others. And that's the educational process. When you provide scope from people from diverse backgrounds to have their voices heard, their lived experiences understood, that helps to educate other people that may not be from that diverse background to realise that that area of diversity does exist and it's through that educational process that we then create more of a diverse understanding of the world around us. Yeah, I think that's important. And and I know that in, our, say, for example, in our history syllabus, um, uh, in, in our K-6 history syllabus, there's a huge focus, and so they should be on Aboriginal perspectives. Hmm. But I, I also think about the other cultures that are represented in our classrooms. Like there's really no teaching about Pacifica heritage. There's really no... Hmm. Uh, teaching about other concepts. I mean, how do we, how do we do it all? Because there's, there's a, there's a lot kind of vying for our attention as educators, and and, and I just wonder, how do we begin to have that much more broader conversation when we are extremely time poor? Um, totally. How do we, how do we do that? So one of the the best ways of being able to meaningfully include diversity in all stages of learning, uh, from stage one to five, so from K to twelve, even at university is to encourage learners to bring their, again, their lived experience, I'm bringing those key concepts to focus okay. our conversation. So, for example, if you are doing a particular uh, key uh, learning area around geography uh, in the classroom, then you encourage people to talk about their um, their countries of origin and, and actually create stories or bring in stories or, or access stories that might be from those countries of origin. Um, you might also talk about, if you're talking about broader areas of community, you might ask students to talk about who makes up their family. And this is where you might have uh, families with um, same-sex parents in them. And that's where you encourage people to talk about their lived experience of what it means to be in such diverse uh, family settings. Um, so it's not about being able to overtly get people to say, hey, we're doing this unit on this particular area. Now we're going to talk about diversity. No, it's about encouraging students to bring their lived experiences and their narratives to the classroom. And, and one of the key things, and this is where people like Paula Freire talked about this, he talked about this idea that our students are not empty vessels. They actually come with a wealth of experience and knowledge and insights that we can we can tap into as part of our educational uh, environments and part of the learning process. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's so important. And um can I just ask, there's a term that's come up um, throughout your work, and I just wanted to get your um, your definition of it, if you don't mind. Um, the term critical whiteness, um, yes. what, what does that mean? And, um, yeah, sorry, what does that mean? Yeah. So you're referring to I'm involved in putting together a handbook uh, called the Handbook of Critical Whiteness. Yes. 
Yes, and it's um, a catchy title. Deconstructing, that's right. So it's a handbook of critical whiteness, deconstructing dominant discourses across disciplines. (laughs) You can tell I love alliteration. I love it. I'm obsessed with alliteration. It it gets you with the first line and then it really, it I love it. Totally. I also like saying this out loud because I like to sound smart. I like to think (laughs) intelligent. So by saying things like epistemologies and ontologies, just makes me feel like I'm intelligent. But anyway, um, what critical whiteness is all about, it's about being able to unpack the idea of whiteness. And when we talk about whiteness, we're not necessarily talking about skin colour. We're talking about structures and systems in Western society that generally privileges one way of doing things. Wow. So one of the terminology I generally or phrases I use to describe whiteness is this notion of white is right, West is best. So this idea that there's only one way of looking or approaching a particular topic or theme in society. So that's where we privilege one particular way of knowing and doing, also known as an epistemology, or being and becoming, also known as an ontology, in the way in which we create learning spaces. So I'll give you an example from an education point of view. When we're teaching students to learn, you know, the basic fundamentals generally will go to key learning areas that is conventional and for the greater good of a capitalist society. Uh, in Western contexts, but then what we what we what we fail to do is actually create learning that is beyond the classroom. So in a lot of diverse cultures, including Indigenous cultures, learning doesn't necessarily just occur in the classroom. Learning occurs across the family and the community in which you're connected. So it's about meaningfully looking at how do we incorporate those particular areas of learning into our context of learning. But this also raises the question of what is accessible and what what can we assess as yeah. true knowledge, right? Yeah, right? so important. So that's an open book. That's, that's, I've just opened a can of worms. So that's really yeah. what I'm trying to unpack is this idea of that there's more than just one way of doing things. And and I think, like, like my culture could learn so much from that. I mean, like, like I see, like, also one of the many things I'm so grateful for of being part of a, Indian South married married into an Indian South African family mm. is that everyone is involved. Everyone's mm. got an opinion. Everyone's got a view. Um, mother-in-law is going to look after the kids because we're going out. It's a family unit. And I love that. And to be perfectly honest, the first sort of six months were pretty confronting um, because I'm like, who are these people in my space? But I've learned to really love that communal aspect of raising families, of um, the family unit of of having conversations and having people kind of in your business. I, I I've loved that and something that I I wish I'd experienced beforehand. And so I think there are so many lessons that we can all learn from each other. And I think it goes back to your amazing point before about how uh, diversity can actually, instead of being a point of difference, can actually be a point of unity, and it can actually be the thing that brings people together. And and I think it's just so incredibly important. I agree with you. I think a lot of diverse cultures really celebrate the idea of life being circular, not linear. linear. So this idea that life is circular, that it's about reciprocity and living for others, going back to this notion of servanthood, but also this idea that you don't just live life from a linear point of view, you just don't go from A to B, that it's actually a constant circle that you're constantly surrounded by others and that our well-being and our other areas of engagement across our life is always connected 
with others. So it's not something that we see individually. It's part of that holistic approach to living. It's so important. And I, I never actually sort of viewed that I had a culture. Like mm. I thought like, and, and that for me has been a, a huge thing. Like I said, I was born in the UK and mm. I just sort of, I just sort of thought, naively that this is just the way we do things and so it's been so wonderful I remember taking a trip back to um uh, to the UK with with my wonderful wife and and getting it was at Christmas time and walking mm. out to St Pancras station and there was this mm-hmm. fake snow and I just had this moment where I burst into tears I've come across quite emotional this evening but I just like I remember like bursting into tears and my wife says what's wrong and I'm like oh my gosh like I feel like like I'm home and so we had this whole conversation. It's something which now we have kids as well. This whole conversation of, of what traditions are important to us. What are things that we want to do in our family? What do we want Christmas to look like? What do we, what yes. national days do we want to celebrate? So we've got Nelson Mandela Day because it's so important to my um, to my wife. And, and we've got Christmas, which has all these different connotations to me. And so for us, it started us on this journey of redefining not only sorry what our culture was individually, but redefining what it meant to be a unit together, and that has been transformative for us. It's so important. I love that because what you've basically shared is this idea of creating a scope for your family to be reflective of its diversity and inclusive of its diversity. And I think that can happen in lots of different settings, including our approach as educational leaders. If we genuinely, as leaders, understand the value of including areas of diversity into what we do and how we see the world, that can make a big difference in creating outcomes that genuinely include diversity. I think that's so important. And I want to be respectful of your time. So just a couple more questions. Um, We talked about um, how sort of um, how uh, the, the number of challenges that we have globally around mm. uh, uh, prejudice and division and so on and so forth. And and I wonder, are you optimistic that we can sort this out or do you, do you think it's going to get better before it gets worse? Or are, are you optimistic about the, the, the direction that we're heading? Um, yeah. In the Australian landscape, I am optimistic yeah. in the Australian landscape. I am optimistic in the context of our current leaders being able to be more inclusive of first nations perspectives. I think the approach of, of voice treaty truth is very, very important, which is that, uh, which is a reflection of the Uluru statement from the heart, which is something that we're doing here nationally in Australia. We're trying to look at how do we ensure that, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples and their perspectives is meaningfully included across government and other structures and settings. So I think if you if if we genuinely include um, again our First Nations perspectives, but also other diverse perspectives in our societies where there are represent where they are represented, then that can go a long way. And I think that's that's where I have hope. I have hope when people are actually meaningfully and sustainably inclusive of diversity and i keep on going on about diversity but diversity is here to stay like and that's something that we've got to come to terms with and i think that's that's part of the solution here and so if we are going to be meaningfully inclusive of other people uh, then that brings me a sense of of hope my last point on that is that if you look around a lot of the tensions that exist locally regionally internationally it's because people 
are not inclusive of diversity. A lot of the tensions and the conflicts that exist in space and place is based on a, a lack of engagement yeah. and genuine celebration of diversity. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so what currently has your attention? What big problem um, are you trying to trying to solve in terms of your work? Great question. Great questions, Matthew. Great questions. Um, I, I I genuinely am interested in uh, what got you to here and, mm. what, and what drives you. And um, yeah, I'm just sort of, what are you trying to work out? Because you seem endlessly curious and excited. <laughs> um, I know it's getting dark outside, but you're still going. Um, but what is it that currently has your attention? So I'm at the moment looking at doing some new research across the Pacific region on the experience of queer communities and their lived experiences associated with being uh, uh, diverse uh, from a gender and sexuality point of view. Um, that, that gets me interested because, again, it's about how do we create scope for those particular experiences to be understood and meaningfully included in conversations across the region. Um, this notion of humanity, and I think that's that's going back to that last question you asked me, where does the hope come from? I think hope comes from this idea that we need to take it back to humanity. And when we create scope for people's humanness to be understood in their context of their diversity, then that can make a big difference in creating those shared uh, approaches and um, practices. So that's got my attention at the moment. Um, a lot of the stuff around how queer communities are meaningfully included in their own communities, um, as well as some other research that I'm doing on drugs and alcohol, um, on mental health, on areas of youth development engagement, um, as well as that other stuff we talked about around critical whiteness and um, decoloniality. Sounds like you are, uh, you've got a lot on your plate. <laughs> There's a lot of different kind of threads, which is, which is really wonderful. And um, finally, what, uh, what do you want to be remembered for? And that's a very philosophical <laughs> question, but let's fast forward however many years. And when you look back, what do you hope you have achieved i generally thought you were going to ask so looking back if you could see your if you could see your tombstone what would it say on it <laughs> it's, it's I, yeah, yeah. What, what kind of what kind of mark do you want to make it's a very philosophical question for it is, it is i no it's a great question for any time of the day um I think I want to be remembered as someone that that was passionate about, um, yeah, creating spaces that were inclusive. And yeah, as I sit here in reflection uh, in this space with you, I'm I'm reminded again of one of my first answers around, you know, what was it like growing up. And, and and knowing and being empathetic around diversity. And I think that's what I want to be remembered for, someone that um, stood up for those that weren't considered to be part of the mainstream, um, including myself, and, and creating opportunities uh, for everyone to be involved in their spaces, in their spaces and places. Well, uh, Professor Avula, I think you are, 
well and truly on that trajectory. And I'm so grateful that you would talk to me today. It, I, I truly mean this. It is an incredible privilege to speak with you. And I'm a, a huge fan of your work. And thank you for, um, thank you so much for your authenticity. Um, and my hope is that there will be teachers all over the world that would hear this conversation and realize that they truly can make a difference. Um, and so I'm hugely grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matthew, and I really appreciate it. And uh, the last thing I just want to say to our, our listeners is, yeah, embrace your diversity, embrace your difference. And uh, my challenge to us all is how can you make a difference through your difference? Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. teaching podcast today i hope that you like me got some valuable insights out of our discussions for show notes please visit the art of teaching and i've also created a private facebook group where we can continue the discussion there the link will be in the show notes thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode